starting a new series today on what I call the book of action. Uh, this is a play on words for the book of Acts in the Bible's New Testament. This is a fantastic book, especially if you're new to the Bible, uh, new to Christianity, exploring Christianity, perhaps. It's a fantastic book because it's a straight narrative. It just tells the story of what's happening in the brand new uh, community, the Christian community, the church. And it just reads like a straight narrative. There's no heavy, complex theology in it. It's not like the Psalms. It's not like the book of Revelation. You don't need a master's degree to, you know, try and figure out what's being talked about. It's just a straight narrative. And it's loaded with action, loaded with events and things that happen as a result of uh, God at work in people's lives. I still hear the, um, I still hear the feedback. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure. It could be me. You know, the, my, sometimes I think I'm crazy and I hear things. But anyway, see if the, I, I hear something. I hear a ringing in my ear there, a hum. Um, and so the book of Acts is a, is a wonderful book for you to explore. And you'll find it in the Bible's New Testament if you can, if you can get to the book of Matthew. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four guys who, make, who show us the story of Jesus, right after there is the book of Acts, the book of action. So I'm going to answer a question today from the book of Acts. What does it mean to be saved? We hear this type of jargon um, in, in church language, uh, this idea of salvation and being saved. Well, what does that mean? What does it really mean to be saved? It may sound like a basic question, uh, but it isn't that basic when you start to break it down. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in Acts chapter 2 uh, this morning. So if you want to turn there, if you have a copy of the Bible on your phone perhaps, or you brought a paper Bible to church, or uh, you know, you, these days you can Google it and find it anywhere. Okay, this is from Acts chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, it's all right. I'm going to summarize the whole chapter for you really super fast because, again, the book of Acts is really easy to read. What's going on here uh, is the book of Acts is like a sequel uh, that Luke uh, writes. So Luke wrote his synopsis of the life of Jesus. And then at the, the beginning of the church uh, and the time where the church is born, he writes, in effect, a sequel to his, his book of Luke. And he's explaining what's going on after Jesus had risen from the dead and at the point where Jesus supernaturally ascends into the sky, uh, into, into heaven in Acts chapter 1. And you see there Jesus has this last conversation with the people and he promises that the, the Holy Spirit is going to come and they need to wait uh, for the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll explain a little bit more about that next week. Um, and then he goes. And he goes up into the sky. And they kind of sit there with their mouths open. Watching watching their master go up into the sky, really. And uh, then they have to make a leadership decision. And they have to replace Judas Iscariot. The man who betrayed Jesus and went and took his own life. And they make this decision to replace him, and they do that. And then they, uh, they basically come together very, very often, and they pray. 
and they're waiting and waiting and waiting for whatever this thing that Jesus promised is, the, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And that's really what's going on in chapter one. And then, pow, you have chapter two. And uh, this is an outline of what happens on the, 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 the so-called day of Pentecost. Uh, this happens to be the weekend of Pentecost that we're in right now. Uh, tomorrow is what they call Pentecost Sunday. And uh, this is a church that believes in Pentecostalism, but a lot of people don't really know what that means anymore. Uh, what's going on at the beginning of Acts chapter 2 is you have a, a high Jewish holiday that's cooking. Uh, this is back there in the first century. It's back there in Jerusalem. There were three holidays that the Jews had to come back home to Jerusalem. Uh, Passover is one. Um, uh, Tabernacles is another. And Pentecost was the third one, or the Feast of Weeks, as you'll see in the Old Testament, comes way from the book of Leviticus. So the Jews had to come back home to Jerusalem, and they had to present a kind of a special offering to God uh, in appreciation for the harvest. And this is what's going on. The day of Pentecost has come. And you've got these people, these early followers of Jesus, and they're together praying. It seems to be about 120 of them. And when they're doing this, right there on that day, that special day where they were to bring this harvest offering into the temple, there is a supernatural, bizarre thing, highly bizarre thing that happens. There is, we're told, a, a sound like the, like the blowing of a violent wind. doesn't say there was a wind. It says there was a sound like a wind so, and very strong. And it seems to fill the whole place where these 120 people are praying. And then they see uh, what seems to be the shape of fire that separates and comes on the heads of each one of these people. I mean, really strange, really bizarre. These people would have believed in the fire of God of the Old Testament, the pillar of fire that led the children of Israel as they were in the wilderness. But to see fire that would separate and come on the heads of individuals was a strange, strange thing. And then these people with this fire on their head, if you can picture this bizarre sight, they start to speak audibly in languages that they do not know. Very, very strange. And they seem to be doing this in a loud fashion because all of the visitors from out of town who were there for this pilgrimage feast of Pentecost, they can hear what these people are saying. And they're a bit shocked. They're kind of freaking out because they're saying, hey, these people here are from Galilee. Like they haven't traveled in their lives. They're from Galilee and we hear them speaking our languages doesn't make any sense. We've got people from all over the place. I'll show you a, a map on the screen. Uh, these, are, these are where the people came from. So they're, they're headed to Jerusalem in the center there from as far away as Rome. And yet they hear these Galileans speaking their language, declaring the, the wonders of God, we're told in the text. But it's impossible for them to know these languages. What in the world is going on? And uh, Peter is going to stand up and he's going to explain to them, here, let me tell you what's happening. And what he does is astounding and it leads to 3,000 people 
deciding to put their faith in Christ, and it answers the question, what does it mean to be saved? He stands up and he, he quotes from their, their Bible. He quotes from the book of Joel, and he says, let me tell you what's going on. The last days have come. And what the Old Testament prophet Joel said, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit, and you're going to see all kinds of things that are going to happen. Your, your sons and your daughters, meaning men and women, will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Um, even on my servants, which in that context meant a slave, uh, both men and women, you know, irrespective of gender, irrespective of social, socioeconomic status, I will pour out my spirit in those days. All those people, there's going to be supernatural things that are going to happen. I'll show you wonders in heaven. Um, I'll show you signs on the earth below. Blood and fire is the image and billows of smoke and the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. This is the image before the great and glorious day of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. First instance of the word there in his, in his little sermon. So he's recalling to those Jewish people a text that they knew full well but it would be a shock for them to hear that because he is saying those days, those last days that Joel predicted have come. And it's a powerful, powerful image. You know, some people talk about the sun turning the darkness, of, uh, the moon to blood. They say, well, that's a lunar eclipse and a solar eclipse, right? Can I tell you a solar and a lunar eclipse can't happen at the same time? Okay, this is, a, this is a supernatural image. He's trying to use words to describe it, but he's saying what Joel had predicted is coming. This would have got their attention. And then he starts to talk to them about who Jesus is and that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ that these Jewish people are waiting for. And then he quotes again from their Old Testament uh, from the Psalms and Psalm 16. And he tries to build an argument that that Psalm is talking about Jesus and that Jesus would be raised from the dead. And then he goes to another Psalm and he demonstrates this again. And the reaction of the people is very, very strong, very, very emotional. And they say, what, do, what should we do now? They, it says that they were cut to the heart. And they said, what must we do now? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And, you, and we see in the book of Acts, the, the, the early church is born really on that day. And it continues in the chapter and ends with, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What does it mean then to be saved? Well, number one, we can be religious, but not be saved, to use the Bible's language. These people who had come to Jerusalem for this feast were religious people. So they're Jewish people and they're God-fearing uh, Greeks who had come. And the Greeks, the Gentiles, they would come to faith in, the, in, in Yahweh, in Jehovah, and they would be called God-fearing people. So you've got religious people. I mean, they're, they're going a long way to head to Jerusalem for this feast. They're very, very religious, but apparently they're not saved, to use the Bible's language. There's something missing in their lives. Can I tell you, we see the same thing happening today 
um, even now, I believe now is, is um, Ramadan. Yes, and, and some of the, the Muslim people will travel to the, the holy places in, in their religious view, and they will make that pilgrimage to Mecca and other places because they're religious, okay? You can be very, very religious. A person can profess to be whatever religion. A person can be religious. That's not enough, apparently, for salvation, you can be religious, but you can be unsaved. You see the reaction of these religious people in verses 5 to 13. They hear these people who haven't traveled speaking in their own languages. You've got like 15 different nations that are represented there. They say, what does this mean? Some of them make fun of the people. And they say, ah, they're drunk. They've had too much wine. Uh, Peter gets up and he says, well, it's only 9 a.m. Like they'd have to be really really alcoholic type people to have that much alcohol. By the way, those of you who wonder whether or not the alcohol in the Bible is grape juice or not, you know, look at the, the text, okay? Uh, so anyway, that's a, as a side, a joke. Um, you're so quiet. Okay, you're learning, you're learning about, about, uh, about Pentecost here. So anyway, uh, the reaction of these people, they're clueless as to what's going on. You can be religious, but not be saved. And the, the problem with religion is it only takes you so far. Religion is let's do all these things and uh, by our actions and by following the rules, we can attain salvation. And it is never enough. R religion will only get you so far to cross that chasm between you and God. It is never enough. Uh, you can be religious, but you can be unsaved. You can know the Bible, but you can be unsaved. These people knew it. Uh, Peter is appealing to their knowledge. He says, listen, Joel says this. Uh, David says this in Psalm 16. David says this in Psalm 110. And he's building an argument using their own Bible to show them you have entirely missed the boat about Jesus. You have assisted in him being crucified, and you didn't realize that it was all part of God's plan. God has raised him from the dead. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah that you have been waiting for, and you all have missed the boat entirely. They knew the Bible. They knew what it said, but they totally missed the boat. And the same is true today. People can boast of their knowledge of the Bible or whatever religious text that they want, but they can still be unsaved. It's not enough. To know it is not enough. You've got to have an experience that the Bible calls salvation. Uh, the, the scripture says in Acts chapter 2 there and uh, verses um, 16 to 21, there's an explanation. Again, using the text and they would have seen it totally differently because of what Peter is doing. And then they react and they're cut to the heart because they realize what Peter is saying must be true because we see and we hear something going on that's inexplicable. How can these Galileans speak these languages? It's impossible. It requires something supernatural to be going on. And then Peter, with great authority, explains to them how they've missed the boat. And they're saying, we are in trouble. We are in serious, serious trouble. Something has to be done on our behalf now. We need to be saved. What does it mean to be saved? Well, clearly from uh, verse 38, salvation includes repentance. 
And uh, before we get there, it's primarily an issue of sin. It's an issue of sin. And this is what those people would have understood. Can I tell you, we, we often paint the message of Christianity in very, uh, very nice, pleasant, um, and palpable terms. You know, we talk about having a relationship with God. We talk about how Jesus can come into your heart. And all of that is good. All of that is well and good. But if we lose the, the understanding that salvation is primarily an issue of sin, this is what it is. You're saved from the consequences of your sin. And if we don't get that and we dilute the message so much that we have it in a nice little pleasant palpable bow for people, that, that reduces the power of the gospel message. You don't become a Christian because you want your life to be pleasant. Um, your life may well get pleasant after you become a Christian, but it may well not. It may well get more difficult. You have no guarantee from God as to whether or not your life is going to be more pleasant because you decide to serve him. And some people, they, they get saved by praying this prayer. Oh, God, if you get me out of this jam, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. Well, that may well get you saved. But if that's all you've got, wait till God puts you back in the jam. Are you going to run from him this time? It's an issue of your sin. Your sin being forgiven. People say, well, if God will heal this thing in my life, if he'll heal my body, if he, then I'll serve him. Okay, but what's going to happen when he doesn't? Um, some people say, well, I, I, uh, if God will prosper me and God will give me money, well, he may well give you money, but he may well take away your money. The reason that you become a Christian, it's a sin issue. So um, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, very, very quickly, uh, Peter says it, but it's very critical. Repent, he says. It includes um, repentance. R repent, he says. Well, what does that word really, really mean? This is a vital part of the package. Uh, repent, in the, in the language of the New Testament, is this idea that you look back at the thing that you used to do and you look back at it with totally different eyes, with a totally different point of view. And with reference to sin, it's the idea that I used to like doing such and such and such, but now I no longer like it. My view has now changed and I look back at it in a different way now, now that my view has changed. It's to change your mind about a given thing. This is to repent. And with reference to sin, it's your whole view of the lifestyle or whatever it was you're doing completely, completely changes. You say, what in the world does this have to do with me? You're talking about first century, you know, Orthodox Jews in, in some weird festival and people speaking in these languages got no relevance to me. Can I tell you that the scripture says, regardless of what time you live in, regardless of what your background is, regardless of what your religious views are, whether you have them or you don't, the scripture makes the bold declaration that all people have sinned. And have fallen short of the glory of God. Oh, 
If that's true, then that would include you and me today, even in the 21st century. You say, come on, I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. I pay my taxes. I don't cheat on my wife. I help old ladies across the street. You know, I'll be fine. If there's a God, I'm going to heaven when I die. Don't talk to me about this sin stuff. That's, that's, uh, uh, That's fire and brimstone. Okay, Uh, if you pass the test, let's talk about the basic, basic thing. And I'll call it God's big ten, the Ten Commandments. Just that. Forget about the whole rest of the Old Testament. And let's just talk about God's, uh, his his top ten list, okay, which you'll find uh, in the book of Exodus. I'm just going to flip there uh, in my my Bible here and just look at these. Uh, Even if you're a Christian in this room, can I tell you? Uh, most Christians break all of these commandments. I'm pretty sure I've broken all of them in some shape or form, certainly in my lifetime, perhaps even as a Christian. Uh, I'm sure. And so, sometimes I've even probably broken them without even realizing that I've broken them. So I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the hand of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Say, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't have any other gods before the real God. Well, this is the idea that, that God is declaring out of all the religious views that are out there, if you're going to serve me, it's going to be me only. And I will not be mixed with any other religious view at all. I am jealous is what God says in the Old Testament. And I will not be shared with any other God. I will not be shared with any other religious view because I'm jealous. If you're, if you're married, it's like, it's like you're saying, listen, my spouse belongs to me. I won't share my spouse with anybody else. Uh, my spouse belongs to me. So this is the same idea. And I meet even people who are Christians who break this commandment. So a person uh, starts going to church, they profess to have a relationship with God, but what they've done is they've taken other religious views and they just squashed them together with Christianity. (laughs) They they take Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, Satanism, occultism, animism. Can you hear me? Okay. So every other ism gets squashed. Uh, And I've seen this time and time again where people in their discipleship and in their understanding of the things of God, there's nothing there. And so they just squash it all together. And they say, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing fine. Well, no, what you've done is you've squashed in. Some other religious view with that of, of, uh, of the God of the Bible. And he will not tolerate that. You will have no other gods before me. How about this one? You shall not make for yourself any idol uh, in the form of anything in heaven above or under the earth. You, you'll not create me in your image. You will not cast me in your image is what he's saying. And we talked about this last week. The idea that God created man, but now man turns around and he creates God. It's the idea of saying, well, God, you've revealed yourself in a certain way, but I ignore that, and I create you in my image. You're going to be the way that I want you to be, not the way that you are. And God, won't, he will have none of that. And this is, in a sense, what idolatry is. It's casting God in your image with your ideas. It doesn't only mean that you're bowing down to some kind of statue. 
the offense is that you, you have disparaged the revelation and the nature of God. This is why idolatry is offensive. And uh, even in this culture, things like greed, things like materialism, uh, these things are an idol. When, you, when you, you do an inventory of your life, where do you spend your time, your talent, your treasure? That's your God. Um, is it the God of the Bible or is it a different one? And this is a searching and a penetrating question. I remember before I was a Christian, uh, the God that I had had to do with sport. Uh, in my particular case, it was baseball. So I lived, breathed, ate baseball. 20 hours a day, you know, I mean, it was, that was everything. And if you'd ask me, who is your God? I would say to you with seriousness, I worship the God of baseball, whoever and whatever he is. If he makes me hit, I will serve him for the rest of my life. What, what, well, whatever is getting your time, your talent, your treasure, that is your God. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're bowing down before something. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God to take the Lord's name in vain. You say, well, I don't do that. And we think that that's only, you know, when you stub your toe and you say the name of Jesus ten times. And they say, oh, that's terrible. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. Do you know, I see people of faith who do this all the time. And what they do is they say that God said something that God didn't say. So God told me, duh, 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 duh. Yeah, but God didn't say that at all. You're saying that God said that because you want something to happen. And so you use his name as leverage so that there's authority behind the statement in order to put pressure on the other person so that they will acquiesce to what you're saying. So it's like the man who comes up to the woman who he's never met and says, God told me that I should marry you. And how does that woman feel? She should turn around and say to that man, well, I'm sorry, God didn't tell me. We, we can take the name of the Lord in vain when we say that God has said something that God hasn't said at all. We're just saying that he said it because it makes us feel really, really important. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you work, on the seventh you rest. You say, well, we're, we're doing good there. We're in, we're in the church setting here on a Saturday, no less. You know, that would work good for the Exodus Ten Commandments. Well, that's not the point. The point is, are you working seven days a week? Are you working yourself so hard that you never, ever take a rest? And even people of faith are guilty of this, where they never, never take time to recharge their batteries, to spend time with their families. They're just, it's always work, 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 work. And this culture inundates people with this attitude that you've got to work until your knuckles turn white in order to to provide for your your family and all that all with good reasons but it drives people to working all the time where they never ever take a break if you're not taking one day out of seven then you've broken it and how about the rest of them honor your father and your mother uh, many of you in this room have aging parents how are your relationships with those aging parents? Are you, are you honoring them? Are you, are you doing your best to take care of those aging parents in their time of need? Or is there a distance that has now evolved 
And this can be a very, very challenging, very, very difficult thing. But it's not, it's not telling uh, uh, only children to do this who are young. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord is giving you. You shall not murder. You say, oh, I'm good on that. There's no problem. Never killed anybody. Well, if you read the scripture through and through, you'll see that to hate somebody is the same thing. You may never, quote unquote, pull the trigger. But if you have that hatred in your heart towards the person, it's the same thing to God as murder. And by the way, with God, he throws in a little caveat here. Uh, if you read, again, uh, the, the Bible through and through, especially the book of James talks about this, uh, Jesus' half-brother. If you break one of them, you break them all. Because it's not the fact that you broke the law. It's who wrote the law that you broke. So you become, in God's mind, a transgressor, even if you break one of them. So if you broke one of the ten, you broke all of them to God. So it's pretty hard to keep them, right? And how about the next one? You shall not commit adultery. Say, ah, oh, that's an easy one. No problem there. Well, again, you, you read the Bible. What does Jesus say uh, to the men in particular? This would apply to women as well. He says, well, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that if anyone even looks at a woman lustfully in his heart, he has already committed adultery. Oh, boy. There you, have, there you have a generation of men guilty of adultery. Look at what we see today in the modern culture. Uh, and we've talked about this in, in, in this church before. The, the, uh, the power and the, the penetration of, of the, the highly toxic form of this in pornography. It's pervasive in the church pervasive amongst evangelicals, men and women. Even people who are leaders and pastors are falling like flies to this because it is so easily accessible. This is adultery. This, you're taking something that does not belong to you. You cannot do that. In God's eyes, this is adultery. It's any form of, of, uh, of sexual uh, intimacy with someone who is not your spouse. And this would include the idea of, um, uh, of um, uh, same-sex marriage, which is now legal across Canada. Well, this, this would not be God's definition of marriage. When he talks about adultery, he's, talking, he's thinking marriage is between a man and a woman. So you have so much of this going on today. And again, even amongst people of faith, uh, you shall not steal. Another thing about these commandments is usually they compound themselves. So the person who, for example, commits adultery is also stealing because they're taking something that's not doesn't belong to them. They're also lying because they usually have to hide it. And it's like a snowball that compounds and compounds. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony or to lie against your neighbor. So in that context, you're not going to make something up and say something that's false or to bear false witness to lie about your neighbor. This, this is dominant in the culture today. Even in places of work, we, we lie all the time. We lie about information. Uh, we conceal things in order to climb the, the ladder of success. This is so, so common today. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or, in our context, a husband as well, a manservant or maidservant or ox or donkey. Uh, you know, the, the grass is greener on the other side. 
That guy's car is nicer than mine. His wife is prettier than mine. Uh, uh, her husband is more good-looking than mine. All those things are all, they all relate to God's top ten. And so when the people back on this day of Pentecost heard about this word repent, they're thinking to themselves, this is a moral issue. We have a problem between us and God. There is a need that we have because we know that we break God's law. His moral law, we transgress against it and we break it all the time. Um, what leads a person to repent? What leads them to a place where they say, I, I think of this now differently than I, th- I thought of it before. Uh, Romans, uh, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 2. Uh, just uh, quickly he does it, but it's a, a, powerful, um, a powerful little passage of Scripture. And he talks about the kindness uh, of God. And he's trying to illustrate to the people that they have no right to pass judgment on one another because they all break the same laws of God. And he says, do you do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness and God's tolerance and God's patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? In other words, God is holding back his wrath to give you time to change in the way that you think about sin. It is a sin issue. It includes repentance. And repentance is when you realize, hey, God is giving me a chance to change. Any of you ever seen the old movie? uh, It's been reproduced many times. The old story, uh, A Christmas Carol. Any of you, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge, known by its real. This is a beautiful illustration of repentance. And how when, when Scrooge realizes that it was all a dream, he realizes he's alive and he can change now. He has time. Um, he, he's not dead. He's not in that coffin, which is the end of the story. And he realizes, I'm alive. I have time to change. And this is the idea of God's kindness and his patience brings about repentance. This would have been on the people's minds in the book of Acts in chapter 2. And again, we see a mention of this uh, from Paul to the Corinthians, and he talks about the sorrow that God produces in people's lives. Um, uh, so 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 um, and verse uh, 10. No, I think I've got the wrong verse. But anyway, I think it's 1 Corinthians. But he talks about godly sorrow, how it leads to repentance. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Do I have the right one? It is 2 Corinthians 6.10. You sure? Oh, maybe I got the wrong Bible here. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 10. Sorrowful yet rejoicing. But No, that's not it. Anyway, wherever it is, the idea that God's Um, uh, repentance is brought about by godly sorrow. He talks about worldly sorrow, and he talks about godly sorrow. And that worldly sorrow, 710, oh, bless your heart. Uh, Chapter 7 and verse, um, verse 10, yeah. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. There's that word. And leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. When people regret, when people have remorse, That's not the same as repentance. Repentance is when 
godly sorrow comes into the place and then you have repentance in the human heart. It's not enough to just regret what you did. Sometimes people regret because they got caught. (laughs) Sometimes people regret because they caused pain. Well, no, no. You turn around and you repent. You look at the thing totally differently than you looked at it before. Salvation includes repentance. It is a sin issue, and salvation includes faith. Back to Acts chapter 2, the verse is repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth for the forgiveness of sins. Repent, but be baptized. In the name of Jesus, this implies faith and trust and belief in Jesus, who died, as, as Peter had just said, and who has risen from the dead and who is the Christ, the Messiah. And them hearing these tongues would be evidence that the Holy Spirit has come and that what Peter is saying is true about Jesus. There has to be faith in someone. There can't just be repentance. I mean, you can repent all day long. Uh, Eventually, that's not enough for you to be saved because that's, that's you doing something. Something has to be done to you in order to transform your life, and only Christ can do that. All of your goodwill and your action and your repentance only will take you so far. So it's repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. I know what some of you from certain church backgrounds are thinking, and you're saying, well, what does this mean? Do I have to be baptized in order to be saved? And the answer is no. If you read the rest of the book of Acts, it's clear baptism is an illustration of something that has happened to you. It is not a prerequisite for salvation. If you're saved and you've come to Christ, you should illustrate that through baptism. And uh, we can have baptismal services in this church. We just go to another place where there's water. I can't bring water in here, but I can find water. It's pretty easy to find. And uh, this is an illustration that a person has come to faith in Christ. Some people say, well, does it have to be in the name of Jesus? Like, don't you baptize in the name of the Trinity? Of course we do. This is just using it this way. We see it many different ways in the book of Acts. But the point is you're exercising faith in Jesus. You can't just do it as, well, I've repented and that's all I need. No, you have to come to Christ because only he has the power to forgive your sins. We see in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, those who accepted the message, those who had believed what Peter said, they were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wow, there's a huge, huge impact because these people really, really believed uh, what Peter said. And we'll close with uh, another example just from the book of Acts. Again, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. Again, to finalize and to answer the question, what does it mean to be saved? Uh, There's a story of Paul and his companions in the city of Philippi. We just finished a series on Philippians. And there they run into a young woman who apparently is possessed by a demon, by an unclean spirit. I told you the book of Acts is very interesting to read. And uh, this this young woman uh, has some kind of apparently supernatural ability where she's able to make money for the people who own her. 
And it gets very, very annoying to Paul and his companions because she's always distracting uh, from their message and what they're trying to teach the people. And finally, Paul effectively does an exorcism out in public and casts the demon out of this girl in front of everybody's eyes. And she no longer has her ability, whatever ability it was. And so the people get very upset and they throw Paul and his companions into jail. And while they're in there, chained up in jail, they're, they're doing what they know how to do. They're preaching the gospel message to the people in prison. They're singing even. They have a very positive attitude. And something very bizarre, very supernatural again happens. And the, the doors of the prison are broken open. And there's a, a guard there. Um, we don't know his name. And he begins to panic because he knows that if prisoners escape on his watch, he will face the death penalty. And he actually is going to take his own life when Paul stops him. And he says, stop, we're all here. Nobody's escaping. And he's explaining to them uh, that, he, you know, he's not going to going to push the jailer to a point where he's going to be executed. And the jailer asks this question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? You tell me the straight goods. What do I have to do to be saved? We hear you singing about it in the jail. We hear you talking about this Jesus all over the place. What must I do to be saved? I'm convinced of the power of your God because I've just seen it. And they reply, believe in the Lord Jesus you and your household, and you will be saved. There's that act, that simple act of faith. It's not only repentance, it's faith. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer brings Paul into his house. He washes them, and right away he decides to be baptized in water to illustrate the decision that he made. And the jailer brings them into his house. He cooks for them. He treats them well. And his whole family comes to believe. There's the faith there in God. Very simple. What does it mean to be saved? It is a sin issue. You've got to repent, change your mind toward that sinful whatever it is, and exercise faith in Jesus. It's not about how you feel. It's not about whether you're religious. It's not even about whether you know the Bible. It's about whether you turn and whether you uh, uh, give your life in faith to Christ. I'd invite you to stand with me. We're just going to close uh, the service here in prayer. I wonder if the musicians can come. Your grace is enough. would be great if you could get ready to sing that. Uh, but I'd like to have just a moment with you, just a private moment. This is a bit of an old-fashioned kind of message. You know, in many times in church settings, the word sin is avoided. Um, and you've heard it rather perhaps bluntly today. Uh, but this is the straight, simple gospel message. And I wonder if there's anybody who's, who's in the room today. And if you want, you can close your eyes just so that nobody is looking around. I'm not going to call you to the front. This is an issue between you and God. It's not, it's not between me and you. It's between you and God. You don't necessarily need to come to the front to express it. But I wonder if there are people and you say, you know what? I have not heard it that way before. I've not heard it put in those terms before, and that makes real sense to me, and I understand that I have broken the law of God, and that I need forgiveness for my sin, and that I need to exercise faith in Christ, and even in this moment, I want to be like that, that guard in Philippi, 
And I want to say, Jesus, whoever you are, I believe that you have the power to forgive me for my sins, so I want to give you myself in this moment and show that I believe in you. If that's you, I just want you to slip up your hand so that I can see it, and I'm just going to lead you in a, in a private moment of prayer. We can talk afterward, but there may be one or two people in the room, and this has really hit you uh, right in the, in the heart, this message today, an old message from the Apostle Peter from 2000 thousand years ago. Anyone at all, I'll just give you a moment. Well, Father, we thank you for your word that challenges us and your word that speaks to us. And I pray for each one in the room, uh, many people of faith, many people who who, uh, have a relationship with you, many people who would say, I'm saved. Uh, And God, I pray that we would always be sensitive, we would always be um, uh, uh, concerned even of the message of salvation, and God, uh, we would be thankful uh, for the forgiveness of sins that you have given to us, and Lord, that we would be burdened to share that message with people as those who have experienced the grace and the mercy of God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.